In doing this program over the past eight years, we've never had a respected guest inform us of the need to bring on an author who was then offered to us less than 24 hours later by one of our distinguished publicists. Until now, that is. Christina Borgeson, the editor of Into the Buzzsaw, an incisive look at the American media, told me two weeks ago we needed to bring on Russ Baker because his book, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Past 50 Years, was brilliant. Happily, we were offered Mr. Baker the next day by Newman Communications, and we quickly moved to make this interview a reality. Russ Baker is an award-winning investigative journalist who has written for Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Nation, The Los Angeles Times, and Esquire, among others. He's the founder of whowhatwhy.com and has served as consulting editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. We're very pleased indeed to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Russ Baker. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, you note uh, near the book's conclusion that one colleague suggested to you that the book ought to be titled Everything You Thought You Knew Is Wrong. <laughs> but the truth is conventional explanations for so much of our history of the past half century appear to be the sort of cover stories of the type that intelligence professionals construct. Your book gives example after example of how the mainstream media has failed us and why we have many, many examples that well, there's, we could cite here. I'd like to start with one of the most recent. Uh, George W. Bush's failure to complete his military obligation for the National Guard and how CBS's story on this in 2004 imploded. I started looking at that in 2004. Uh, in fact, I was in the rather unusual situation of being having access to those same documents that uh, CBS and Dan Rather did. Uh, fortunately, I didn't publish them, and I'm, I'm here to talk about <laughs> that. Uh, but, but that's a very interesting story, because uh, I wrestled with that for a long, long time, and I kept looking at what I could make of that thing, and I finally came to the conclusion that what had happened was a, a very sophisticated covert operation uh, was created for multiple purposes. One was uh, to uh, distract from the story uh, of Bush's National Guard service, and another was to, to uh, take out one of the more outspoken television figures uh, who was asking tough questions of the Bushes, uh, and then sort of, you might say, uh, set an example for the rest of the media of what they didn't want to do, which was to dig into these kinds of things. Well, I must say, it certainly appeared to have succeeded brilliantly in spite of the fact that uh, W and his dad sort of had reputations as bumblers. Uh, not so with this operation. Oh, no. You know, the, the thing is, they're, they're so much not bumblers overall. And uh, uh, with George W., one of the most interesting things for me in the five years that I spent researching Family of Secrets was how so much of the conventional wisdom turned out to be wrong. So, for example, George W., much more calculating and much smarter about a lot of very practical things. Uh, those things that we focus on, his, uh, uh, you know, limited talents, uh, speaking extemporaneously, uh, or even reading speeches and so forth, that, that stuff doesn't even matter. The fact that he liked to delegate, have other people handle things that probably was not terribly well read and so forth, that is, is, is beside the point. He uh, uh, turns out to have been very deeply involved as a kind of a partner to his father in uh, some very, uh, uh, some unknown, let's say, covert operations over the course of decades. Uh, and as, as you know from having looked at Family of Secrets, I get into those things quite extensively. And we find out that even George W. himself 
uh, in his younger years that many of the companies he was involved with uh, don't look like normal companies. And you see the most fascinating characters, figures connected to uh, regimes like uh, Ferdinand Marcos, the South African uh, apartheid government, uh, the Shah of Iran, and on and on, all putting money into the younger Bush's businesses, telling us that, in fact, this fellow had much more going on. Well, you start out investigating uh, how George W. Bush kept getting away with things, but as you go back, went back in time, you learned that there, that his family and their friends were were really a key to understanding both of the Bush presidencies. I'd, I'd like you to kind of outline just a little bit how you've learned how poverty just work in this country, and and particularly how Wall Street old money and the new money of maybe the oil companies and such converge with the Bush family. Okay, well, I mean, one of the important revelations, I think, in Family of Secrets, at least uh, for me and for many people who've read it, uh, is, is to realize uh, the extent to which the Bushes should not be seen with any kind of singularity. Um, unfortunately, the way that our media works, we treat presidents as uh, uh, almost like sole figures on the stage of history. And, you know, the conventional historians write these books about them and so on. There's no context at all. And, of course, these people only really matter in, in the framework of the larger interests that back and create them. And so the Bushes are special in this regard because it's not just one generation. It's not even just two. It's three, four, five generations of a family essentially serving some of the most powerful interests in this country. And so I go all the way back to a, a great, great grandfather, uh, and, and he's involved with, uh, with munitions companies and railroads and Rockefellers and Harrimans and what have you. Uh, and so that's really the, the, the way to see the Bush family, is that they're not just people doing whatever they want. In fact, no president uh, is a person just doing whatever uh, he wants. Uh, they, they are very much... Uh, the, the product of these environments, and in fact, they're under tremendous and constant pressure, mostly by those that we do not see. And so, say, with these recent midterm elections, all the talk about the people and what they want, uh, uh, and the Tea Party and so forth, uh, those, those people that we see out there holding signs and so on are essentially being manipulated uh, and propagandized by very sophisticated operations run by others who cannot just get out there and, and uh, you know, espouse their interests because they're really too small a group and they have too much power and they, and they can't uh, put that out front for us to see. Well, I was hoping to get to that bit about the elections as, as we wrap this up, but you brought it up, so I want to I I back into that. Uh, you, you've clearly outlined that uh, um, George Bush and so many of his friends have, have associations with the CIA that go way back, and there really is a very... The very psychology of how scandals have been managed or how data is presented to the public looks like the sort of thing has been managed by professionals. Well, that's right. And, you know, what's very interesting is that uh, I, I just spent a number of months traveling in other countries, and people everywhere else I go seem to find this to be completely understandable. In fact, they just assume that the visible side of politics is not the real story. But if for some reason in this country there's this tremendous kind of uh, enforced conformity of opinion, which uh, assumes that what we see is what we get and that that is it. In other words, there's no kind of awareness of how uh, uh, powerful interests work. There's no sense of this giant uh, uh, military-industrial complex, this other giant intelligence complex doing anything. And so it's almost like they don't exist. And yet we know that there are 
tens, even hundreds of thousands of people working in these apparatuses, uh, and what do they do? And are these entities only interested in advancing their interests abroad, or, or do they also do that here? So what Family of Secrets is about is really this look into this incredibly uh, deep and important structure. I, I, I start, actually, the first half of Family of Secrets is about George H.W. Bush, uh, about the father. Uh, and the reason I do that is because as I looked at the son, I realized he could never have been president if the father had not been president. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about how the father got to power. And, and pretty quickly, I could see that the father himself was an unlikely president, uh, lacking uh, many of the qualities we usually ascribe with great leadership. Uh, and so I became interested in the father. And uh, if we have time here, of course, I'd be glad to go into what I found about him. But it really astounded me and ch completely changed my view, not only uh, of the father, but of what has been going on in this country over the last uh, three or four decades. Well, Russ, I definitely want to have you come back in future installments, so we don't have to do everything today, and I hope you will do that. But I, I would, there's one thing I would like it to hit on. There wouldn't have been a Bush 43 if there hadn't have been a Bush 41, but there wouldn't have been a Bush 41 if there hadn't have been a Richard Nixon. And you look into the, uh, the connections between Nixon, who apparently never never thought much of Bush, but yet kept giving him uh, kept giving him jobs. That's right, and I was intrigued by that, and I wanted to figure it out. And the way I do my work is really like old-fashioned detective work. I, d I don't have leaks or some sort of insider who's, you know, spelling it all out for me. I just have questions, and I, and I want to know. I have this sort of burning need to know the answer. And so as I began looking at the father, and I thought, well, you know, how the, let me just figure out how the father, if I'm going to write a book about the family, let me figure out how the father got to the top. And I tried to figure out what was it that got him to the top. And really, if it was anything in particular, it was the sponsorship by Richard Nixon. And so my next question was, why does Richard Nixon sponsor this guy? And I could not figure that out. And I talked to a lot of people. I got my hands on dozens and dozens of books about Nixon and about the Bushes, and there was really nothing in there. And I could not, it could not make sense of it. And so I began uh, to, to get inklings. One thing was a, uh, uh, one of the lesser-known White House tapes uh, where where uh, uh, you hear Nixon and Kissinger talking, and they're talking about this tremendous and very important secret initiative opening up with China, and 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 Kissinger says, you know, we need to send somebody there uh, on this secret mission. Who should we send? And Nixon uh, offers the name George H. W. Bush, and then Kissinger basically replies and says, "What are you kidding? He's a complete <laughs> idiot." To which Nixon goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I thought of that too." And you know, then I'm thinking, well, why would Nixon do this? It's almost like he felt obligated to offer this guy's name. Well, the answer is he was obligated, and, and I, but I, I couldn't tell how he was ob obligated, and I, I kept digging back, and one of the clues, which you'll see in the photo gallery in Family of Secrets, is a picture with uh, Richard Nixon, a young-looking Richard Nixon, standing with a taller man. They're both wearing Panama hats. And you see the taller man uh, uh, grinning and, and, and adjusting Nixon's hat. And Nixon looks sort of embarrassed. And when I show that picture to, to people, I ask them, what's the relationship of the two men in the photo? And they say, well, clearly the taller man is calling the shot. The <laughs> shorter man feels uh, sort of uh, that he has to do what the taller man wants him to do. Well, the taller man is Senator Prescott Bush, the grandfather of George W., the father of H.W. And there you see the answer to this mystery. Um, Prescott Bush was a partner in a very, very powerful banking company called Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, they were so powerful that they were instrumental in creating the CIA, uh, in putting people into 
both Democratic and Republican administrations throughout the 20th century at top levels. Uh, and Prescott Bush, although he was just a freshman senator uh, in the early 50s, and Richard Nixon was the vice president of the United States, Prescott Bush seemed to have this incredible hold on him. And I couldn't figure out what that was about, and so I went all the way back. And basically what I discovered was something that is not in, I don't think, any book, has never been written, and that is the real story of Richard Nixon's beginnings, which are that he was basically chosen by Prescott Bush and the bankers, uh, and they put him into politics in order to knock out a liberal that was investigating Wall Street. Jerry, Jerry Voorhees. That's right. Yeah. And so we know all about Jerry Voorhees. He's in all the biographies, but that story sure isn't. No, it isn't, and I think people may want to want to, want to get a hold of your book just for that picture, which I'm looking at now. It does It does tell quite a tale. You talk about a great length in the book about how the conventional story of Watergate, speaking of Nixon, is, is muddled and it's flawed. And having had John Dean on this show twice, I, I was really impressed by what your research outlined about, uh, about him and others. The basic story you outlined is that Bush associates apparently were, were, were soured on Nixon and used intelligence figures to set up that burglary in the Watergate and then used uh, people like John Dean to compromise Nixon, who, who really wasn't behind the burglary. Well, that's right, and I want to start out by saying that this was a shock to me. You know, I've always uh, assumed the worst about Watergate, the conventional story, starting out as a journalist. My heroes were Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, you know, I felt that Dean had done the right thing and so on. That's what, uh, what most people think. But, you know, when you start doing this kind of research, uh, the first thing I discovered was uh, when I looked at H.W. Bush, I found that uh, far from being named, he was officially, he was named as the CIA director in 1970, uh, end of 75, as a neophyte with no intelligence background, uh, a la Leon Panetta. But what I found was, in fact, he did have a reason to be appointed. He had a secret background himself, had worked uh, for the CIA himself for years, for decades even, prior to that, under the cover of being a congressman, an oil man, and so on. And once I realized that, I thought, my gosh, there really is something else going on here. And, and this also explained uh, Nixon's uh, sense of obligation. In any case, what you start seeing is that Nixon, uh, as he becomes president, he starts trying to stretch his wings. Now he thinks, you know, I'm on the top. I don't have to kowtow to these guys anymore. I don't have to answer to them. And, you know, when you're president, the only thing really left to do is to get your legacy together, to do something that's going to get you uh, uh, some sort of a favorable review in the history books. And so Nixon begins trying to do that. Basically the same kind of things John F. Kennedy started doing uh, 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 in his final year, which is, which is really reaching out to America's enemies, trying to make a peace. And Nixon just like Kennedy, was angering uh, people in the uh, military-industrial complex, people in the Central Intelligence Agency. And there's a tremendous amount of proof of this. And by the way, very, very interesting to note, former intelligence figures have been saying for decades that the Central Intelligence Agency back in the 1950s had wanted a capacity to have influence throughout the government, had put their people into many, many different agencies of the government, uh, including but not limited to uh, the White House itself. And so what we see is that there are all kinds of people working in the White House, getting jobs in there, where you don't know who they really are. And so and the president has no idea because, of course, there's a huge number of people in there and they're referred and so forth. And so Nixon actually found himself surrounded by a whole bunch of people he didn't know. He had no idea who John Dean was. Uh, he didn't know most of these people, uh, uh, Eagle Krogh uh, and, and what have you. 
and so it turns out that he only knew a handful of them, and all the rest of these guys were people who had scrambled to get jobs there. And as it turns out, many of them uh, were connected to the Central Intelligence Agency. And so you see this operation that I describe in several chapters of Family Secrets, as it begins closing in on Nixon, they're deciding that they can't work with this guy, and he's become a problem, and they want him out. And so what you see is this effort to gin up one scandal after another, and then the, the, the burglary itself, which is just staggering, and maybe on another show we can just go into the burglary at length. Yes. Basically, if you go back and you study it, you can see that this was intended to be discovered. And so all of these people involved with it, uh, right, from, right from the beginning and right through to Bob Woodward himself, all had intelligence connections, and it was, a, it was kind of like a, like a play that had been, been written in advance. We're speaking with author Russ Baker about his book, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. Russ, I want to talk about something that really is you start out the book with. It's, it's been endlessly fascinating for me for the past 40-some-odd years, uh, the whole mystery of the strange cover-ups that clearly surround the JFK assassination. Uh, it's something that America's been fascinated with, and I want to note for listeners that you've, you've made some very interesting connections here and filled in some gaps that other people have not done. And I, I want you to talk a little bit today. We don't want to get into this bogged down in it because it's, it's certainly a topic we can go on at great length about. But I want you to talk about one of the most curious figures in the matter of the JFK assassination, a man named George DeMornshield. He was a sophisticated Texas oil man. He obviously knew Poppy Bush extremely well. And yet in 1963, this man was found guiding a young man around Dallas named Lee Harvey Oswald. Can we talk about DeMornshield? Sure. Uh, again, I think it's important to mention that all of these revelations in Family of Secrets are not any kind of pet theory of mine. In fact, I didn't know about any of this stuff, except that I came upon it in the course of uh, following these various trails and trying to establish uh, these gaps in the Bush family history. I learned about DeMorenshield because uh, I was focusing on Poppy Bush, that's a nickname, of course, for George H.W., Bush 41, uh, uh, focusing on Poppy Bush's earlier years, and it was very interesting to me to discover that uh, well, first of all, this DeMorenshield, uh, his name does appear in the Warren Commission report. The, the commission took more testimony from him than from anyone but uh, Marina Oswald, and so he, they, they felt they had to spend a lot of time talking to him uh, because of all of his curious connections. And as you point out, one of those was that he was basically a kind of a father figure to Lee Harvey Oswald. He, was, he and his wife were in their lives for about six months out of, out of that last year, literally almost like babysitters, you know, driving them places, taking them to the dentist, find, helping them find uh, housing, uh, taking them to parties, introducing them to people. And so I, of course, was interested in, 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 uh, in that, but I was interested in only because uh, I, I had uh, read somewhere that George H.W. Bush in an interview had been asked where he was the day that Kennedy was shot. Uh, and, of course, this was intended as a light question just to talk about his recollection of historical events. And he very bafflingly claimed not to remember where he was. And, of course, I was intrigued by this, and so I thought, well, I'd better just figure out what the answer to that is. And that took me down a side path while I was working on Family of Secrets four years just looking, uh, uh, dividing part of my time and spending it just looking at the Kennedy assassination Bush connection. Uh, and as I looked at that, I found this, this man, DeMorenshield, 
Uh, and then I discovered that there was, in fact, that if you go all the way back with George H.W. Bush to when he was a young boy, he was living in a, uh, in a cottage at Phillips Andover Academy with another boy. Uh, and that boy uh, had an uncle, and the uncle's name was George DeMorenschild. <laughs> and so this, this very close connection to DeMorenschild goes all the way back decades. Uh, and so, you know, flash forward, and we see DeMorenschild was a guy, by the way, out of a Russian uh, oil family. And, and that's, that's one of the connections there, this, this kind of aristocracy of oil that consorts internationally, going all the way back to the early part of the uh, of the 20th century. Uh, and so DeMorenschild comes to the United States. His brother is married into this wealthy Park Avenue family. The two sons uh, are off living in this cottage together. And so then you flash forward uh, 1963, and this DeMorenschild, who's got files, yay long, and all the, in the intelligence uh, agency records with tons of cover stories where they're claiming that they're interested in him, but they don't know who he really is. He's obviously some kind of a deep cover intelligence operative himself, and he's steering Lee Harvey Oswald. And, of course, when the uh, Warren Commission interviews him, they never get to the fact that he knows uh, George H.W. Bush. They never get to the fact that he knows all of these powerful people, and they basically ask him these ridiculous softball questions, uh, some of which I, I, I excerpt in Family of Secrets. They're clearly not trying to figure out, or they're trying to figure out not who George DeMorenschild actually is and who he knows. Well, it's a topic we'll have to come back to because it's rather famous in the JFK matter that uh, a man that knows Texas oil people, right-wing Texas oil people, and is and affiliated with a right-wing anti-communist uh, uh, Russian emigre community in Dallas, somehow accepts this supposed Marxist Lee Oswald, this young guy who's apparently a communist, into their midst. It, it is indeed a very strange story. It is. And, you know, one of the other very interesting things about H.W. Bush and this whole story is that um, I actually see uh, monies going to, to DeMorenschild uh, routed, uh, connected with Brown Brothers Harriman, the Bush family bank, uh, in that period. Uh, and then George H.W. Bush himself, and in Family of Secrets, again, a number of chapters just on this Kennedy thing. Uh, and you actually see that, according to J. Edgar Hoover, in a mem memo that he puts into his files, he's identifying George Bush as being a CIA operative on November 22 for the CIA, involved with some kind of activities with Cuban exiles. Uh, I have come to the conclusion, I'm very careful in Family of Secrets not to hit the reader with too many conclusions. I want them to be able to connect the dots themselves. But I, I have since come to the conclusion that that J. Edgar Hoover memo was part of a very complex game of blaming each other where he wanted to put into the records as a kind of a, a kind of a chess move George Bush's name and, and identify him. It says assassination of President Kennedy briefing held, you know, refers to Cuban exiles and then it actually has Mr. George Bush of the CIA was briefed on this. And so Hoover is, is sticking that in the records as a way of protecting himself in this kind of turf battle with the CIA over blame of who was involved with it. It is truly fascinating that that whole that whole aspect and how uh, I noticed when when Bush was Bush forty one was running for president this came up in the Nation magazine and it just the the mainstream media just didn't seem to find it all that interesting. Well, they didn't cover it at all. What they did was uh, basically the CIA put forth another man. This is a very interesting story, which is in Family of Secrets. Another man named George Bush, and they said, "Oh, this is another guy working for us." Well, first of all, the mere fact that they answered that—you see, the agency never confirms or denies 
whoever worked at the agency. And so this was very, very suspicious that they put that forward at a time when Poppy Bush was, was on his way to the uh, uh, nomination for the presidency. Obviously, a tremendous amount of pressure had been put on the agency to say it wasn't him, it was another guy. And in fact, there was another fellow. But I, uh, if you take a look at that, this other fellow, also named George Bush, had been recruited unwittingly by the agency just prior to, to <laughs> November 22, 1963, asked if he'd like to come and work there. He was put in a very low-level capacity. And then several months later, they let him go. And so you have to ask, why would the CIA feel the need to have another fellow with the same name and bring him in for a short period of time and then jettison him. And it's pretty clear that there was some sort of a need. Uh, uh, obviously, H.W. Bush must have said, look, I feel exposed on this thing. What if my name ever comes up? And I guess it's standard tradecraft to be able to uh, have that kind of deniability. Well, your book is full of provocative questions like that. Your research is obviously done very carefully. You, you went at one point to many of your colleagues, showed them what you were up to. They agreed that you'd done your homework. And yet you, you admit in the book that you thought with alarm that much of what you're doing could be branded a conspiracy theory, which is always an effective way to, base, to discredit something. Well, that's right. And, you know, I later studied my own fear, and I thought, what are we looking at here, and why is it that so many of my friends who work at America's top news organizations take what I do very, very seriously, but we're, we're wanting themselves to stay away from it, and we're warning me of the ramifications of, of writing about these kinds of things. There's a tremendous amount of fear in this country. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of fear and self-censorship on the part of all of us, because we're worried about keeping our jobs, we're worried about being discredited, we're worried about being put in a light in which we might look foolish, uh, even though we feel that we're doing serious work. And that is a very, very grave danger to a democracy. Uh, it's also important because... Uh, the, the, the very term conspiracy theory is, is a term that basically means almost nothing, and yet it's taken on this tremendous uh, ability to taint people. It is a classic term as part of propaganda, and the very creation of it as a derogatory term, because if you actually take it apart and do a little bit of analysis, conspiracy is not some kind of a voodoo thing. It's a category of crime, and it's being prosecuted right now as we speak in courtrooms across the country. It is when multiple people get together and conspire to commit a crime. And so the word conspiracy is a neutral term. The word theory is also a neutral term because all it means is us uh, finding a way to think about things. And so when you put the two together, you have a way of thinking about how people get together and conspire. There's nothing uh, sinister about engaging and theorizing about possible conspiracies. But the very fact that that word is bandied about, and as soon as it's mentioned, that's the end of the discussion. Very, very chilling. I must note, with an irony that I only now fully appreciate after reading your book, that uh, John Dean told us some years ago that he only believed in conspiracy theories that were real. <laughs> Well, Family of Secrets surprised me again and again with the revelations you, you dug up. One that um, still kind of amazes me is that both Harvard and Yale played some major roles in helping George W. Bush get ahead uh, while he was an adult financially. And can you talk a little about how Harvard invested funds in Bush 43 ventures that never did well financially? Yes, that's a very strange thing, uh, although I must say that People tell me that the entire book, Family of Secrets, reads to them like somebody once described as Robert Ludlum on steroids. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it is true that truth is stranger than fiction. And, you know, here's another thing. So I, I was looking at George W. Bush's professional path. 
and how these little dinky oil companies he had were receiving these strange injections of money. Uh, you know, a tiny little oil company that was failing. A man showed up with a check for a million dollars. Uh, the lawyer said to him, hey, I need to have you sign some papers and so on where you, you basically indemnify us. And the guy said, no, nah, don't bother. It's not my money. <laughs> uh, you know, a million dollars into a little tiny company. That company failed. It was snapped up by a bigger company, also very, very strange. Uh, and then that company failed. It was snapped up by another company, very, very strange. And that third company, uh, the one to which you're referring, is this incredible rogues gallery of all of these sort of sinister elements, offshore money, people connected to the Saudis and uh, Ferdinand Marcos and what have you, and connections going all the way back to World War II and to a potentially giant uh, and secret gold cash in the Philippines, uh, all of these elements. And then you see, coming into this company, uh, Harvard. And Harvard comes into this perennially unprofitable company that's not attractive to practically anyone. And they start pumping huge amounts of money, up to $40 million into this company. And so I want to know why they did that. And I researched that. And in Family of Secrets, I don't want to spoil the whole story, but I, I, I start with what the Boston Globe began looking at, and then I go much, much further. And it traces back to a man on the Harvard Board of Overseers, and I find out about his secret past. And he, like many of these other people, traced back to intelligence activities in World War II, and we see what appears to be some kind of giant operation, which is continuing for decades, influencing presidents, moving huge amounts of money, possibly for covert operations all over the world. It's a staggering story. Family of Secrets makes a start at it, but there's much more research that needs to be done. The key thing here is all of these elements, including Harvard, are funneling money into this company uh, that George W. Bush gets put on the board of. Uh, he's given a nice salary, and he's told, hey, you don't, you don't have to do anything. Go off to Washington and help manage your father's presidential campaign. So clearly all these elements, including this intelligence component running through Harvard University, are attempting to influence who becomes president of the United States and who has their ear. We're speaking with Russ Baker, author of Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and The Hidden History of the last 50 years. Your book shows how the deck is stacked in favor of the powerful and how the boundaries of our national dialogue have been shaped for us by our media. Uh, people, some, There's a lot of people saying they want less government, but you point out they only seem to want less government uh, in areas they don't like. And I guess uh, we need to probably talk a little bit about this, this week's election. It's kind of an epilogue to exactly what you've been writing about. More and more I'm coming to the conclusion that we are just being jerked around constantly. Uh, I think that the... Uh, uh, the people, uh, the, the, the liberals, the Democrats uh, are being jerked around, and I think the, the, the Tea Party people are being jerked around. I think, I think there is an effort to try to get us all at each other's throats. There's a tremendous amount of scapegoating, a uh, tremendous amount of anger, usually focused on the wrong issues. You know, one of the most telling things is when, when during Bush's presidency, when they, when they said no class warfare, they would just announce that that was to be the policy, and then the media just jumped and said, okay, fine, no class warfare. I mean, class warfare is the most normal thing in the world. You have it everywhere uh, throughout history, the, the haves and the have-nots. It's perfectly normal that you discuss the equitable distribution of the resources of the world and and you know how that ought to be done and at a time when so many people are losing their homes uh, people don't have jobs and so on we're focusing almost entirely on the wrong thing and that is no accident uh, this is very very much engineered because why would we not be talking constantly about who are those people who are making obscene amounts often through dishonest and, and quasi-criminal 
uh, business practices? Why are we not focusing on those things? And why are we instead scapegoating very poor people who, you know, naturally try to emigrate for a better life? Why are we fighting over issues of sexual identification? Uh, why are we fighting over these issues like uh, the marijuana and so forth when when the big issues that affect everyone are the issues of who control the resources, uh, the issues of life and death, why really did we go into Iraq, why really did we go into Afghanistan? And as you know from Family Secrets, I actually even answer the Iraq question with a never-before-published interview with George Bush's ghostwriter uh, and what he says Bush told him back in 1999, before he was uh, president and even before he was the nominee of the Republican Party about his thoughts uh, on Iraq. So those big questions are the things we seem not to be talking about. Well, we don't have time to talk about it today, but but your book uh, shows how intelligence figures and oilmen have developed this uh, symbiotic relationship with the royal family of Saudi Arabia, which which explains an awful lot of what's been going on in the world the last couple decades. I, I do want people to, to get this book, Family of Secrets. I just can't recommend the work you've done highly enough, uh, Russ. But but you've also got a website we probably should talk about, too, before we leave the, uh, this discussion. And tell us about whowhatwhy.com. Sure. Well, we, we've started a nonprofit investigative reporting site. We're just in the early stages. It, it will only take off when members of the public decide to go to the site and click where uh, it says support. Uh, and sign up for monthly donations. We desperately need public support so we can continue doing this kind of digging. Uh, we'd like to hire up a, a crack team of some of the best investigators in the country, provide this information on an ongoing basis. Uh, our website, whowhatwhy.com. Uh, the book, Family of Secrets, and we've got a uh, Facebook fan page. Uh, you can join. We'll just put that up. Uh, we'd love to hear from people. Russ Baker, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. I, I, you've done you've done some wonderful work. There's so much here that I didn't know about. Just I just want to throw one out for the public, which just is something, just one little tidbit. I didn't realize till I read your book that that ranch in Crawford, the W had that he kept talking about bringing leaders to. They bought that as he was ramping up for the presidential run in 2000. Well, they did, and it's gone. By the way, he doesn't even have it anymore. <laughs> it was a prop. Brilliant. Well, Russ, thanks for talking with us. I hope that, you know, as this book tour maybe winds down in a month or two, we can bring you back uh, maybe first of the year because there's so much to talk about. I'd love to do that. Thank you very much. It is only a paper moon hanging over the cardboard seat. But wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me It is only a canvas sky sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe